Hi, and welcome to the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, or the LGBT Bar Association of New York. We call this installment the Trans Trio. That's because we'll be discussing several cases with significant implications for three very important issues impacting transgender rights. First, a unanimous Sixth Circuit panel held that discrimination based on transgender status is protected under Title VII, and that Title VII did not substantially burden the employer's exercise of his religious beliefs under the federal RIFRA law. Second, we'll give you an update on Trump's hateful trans-military ban. Third, we'll tell you about the flurry of activity around equal access to accurate birth certificates for transgender individuals. And of course, Art will be surprising me with his choice for our Of Note segment. And of course, we have a very special segment this month. That's because April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I recently sat down with the Anti-Violence Project's legal director, Virginia Goggin, to discuss their legal work and how violence impacts our community. So let's dig in. On March 7th, in another significant Title VII victory, a three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit held that the statute's prohibition of sex discrimination in employment included gender identity discrimination. Also at issue in this case is the employer's assertion of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, as a legal defense to a violation of Title VII. This case is important for so many reasons. This is the first time that any federal appeals court has ruled that RIFRA would not give an employer a license to discriminate in a gender identity discrimination claim by a transgender plaintiff. This is also the first time that the Sixth Circuit has explicitly agreed that gender identity discrimination is a form of sex discrimination directly prohibited by Title VII. In addition, this is a big win since so few states have statutes in place prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity. Art, take us through the facts at issue here and this case's journey to the Sixth Circuit. Okay, well this is a suit that was brought by uh, Amy Stevens. Uh, Amy Stevens worked for many years for uh, this funeral home uh, that was part of a chain of three. and she filed a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission claiming sex discrimination. Uh, and since this was within the Sixth Circuit, it should be a slam dunk case. This is in Michigan. Uh, the Sixth Circuit has precedent going back more than a decade that uh, transgender people who encounter adverse employment actions because they are transitioning have a claim under Title VII under the gender stereotype theory because transitioning is certainly deciding not to accord with the gender stereotype that fits uh, your birth sex. And the federal district judge did treat it as a partial slam dunk case. Mm -hmm. That is, on a motion to dismiss, the judge refused to dismiss the case because of the gender stereotype theory. He said uh, that I can't entertain this as a gender identity discrimination claim, but I can entertain this as a sex discrimination claim for failure to comply with the employer's gender stereotype. So on that basis, the case was allowed to go forward, and Judge Cox did find, uh, in terms of the plaintiff's case-in-chief, that the plaintiff had proven sex discrimination in violation of Title VII. But the employer, Mr. Rost, raised RIFRA. And uh, just to give the background on RIFRA, uh, it was passed to overrule a Supreme Court decision in 1990 called Employment Division versus Smith, where the Supreme Court said 
that individuals do not have a sort of free-floating religious exemption from complying with general laws that don't target religion. Uh, and uh, since then... This was the peyote case. This is the peyote case. <laughs> uh, some, some truck drivers who uh, were members of a Native American tribe and as part of a ritual ceremony took peyote and then they funked the drug test mm-hmm. and they got fired and they were denied unemployment benefits. And that's why they, they ended up suing the employment division. And uh, the court said, no, they don't have a right to employment, ben- uh, discrimi- uh, employment unemployment discrimination benefits. That's easy for me to say. They don't, <laughs> they don't have a right to unemployment discrimination benefits uh, because they uh, were fired for cause. RIFRA was passed, and it was to attempt to reinstate the First Amendment law that predated that decision. Because prior to that decision, the Supreme Court had taken the position that if someone has uh, suffered a substantial burden on their free exercise of religion because of the effects of a neutral state law, they could raise a First Amendment claim and the law would only, could only be applied to them if it was shown that it was necessary to achieve a compelling government interest. And it was thought, it was thought that businesses could not raise a RIFRA defense because businesses are not real people. They're artificial people. This is a legal fiction. But, but in the U.S. Code, uh, there is the, the definition statute in Title I of the U.S. Code, which says that corporations are people for purposes mm-hmm. of federal statutory and constitutional analysis. I have a feeling you're going to be bringing up Hobby Lobby. Right yeah, <laughs> you, you, you have a very good feeling. So a few years ago, the Supreme Court held in the Hobby Lobby case that, what do you know? A, a business corporation can practice religion. Uh, at least in the case of a uh, closely held corporation. So since Hobby Lobby, it's clear that this funeral home, for example, could raise religious objections because Mr. Rost, in fact, is not only the principal owner, he owns almost all the stock, yeah. but he also runs the place. So his views are the views of the funeral home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Judge Cox said he felt that there was a substantial burden here on Mr. Rost's free exercise of religion, and that the refusal of the EEOC to negotiate some sort of compromise like a unisex uniform or something like that uh, meant that they couldn't overcome his uh, free exercise objections. But she appealed. And uh, the Sixth Circuit, a three-judge panel of the Sixth Circuit, ruled on March 7th, as you mentioned, unanimously, uh, not only affirming Judge Cox's finding of a Title VII violation, they took that one step further, and they said, uh, we don't have to use this gender stereotyping theory and everything. We agree with the Seventh Circuit last year in the Hively case where they said that sexual orientation discrimination is a subset of sex discrimination. Well, we say the same thing here about gender identity discrimination. It's, it's just a form of sex discrimination, and you can just bring a gender identity discrimination claim under Title VII, and it'll be covered by the statute. Uh, so let's turn to the other thing, the RIFRA. And they did not say that RIFRA does not apply here. They said that as far as they could see, requiring the funeral home to employ a transgender funeral director does not substantially burden Mr. Ross' free exercise of religion. They said he can believe whatever he wants, but it's, you know, no skin off his back. And he claimed that this was going to be disruptive, that clients were going to be distracted. Uh, But uh, the court said, well, look, under... Title VII, he's not required to pay for uniforms for anybody. Mm-hmm. As long as he is paying for uniforms, he's got to be equal about yeah. it, you know. 
so they, they thought that this was not a substantial burden, and therefore they didn't even have to get into the question of compelling interest and narrowly tailored, but they said, mm-hmm. we're going to do it anyway, just in case this goes up, yeah. you know, on banker to the Supreme Court, we want to cover all our bases. So they found that, in fact, enforcing Title VII in this way is the narrowest, least intrusive way to achieve a compelling interest. And that's another important finding in this case. They said, now that we've decided that gender identity discrimination is sex discrimination, we have the same compelling interest to stamp out gender identity discrimination that we have on sex discrimination. This yeah. is a real breakthrough case Huge. on like yeah. many different fronts. And on, a, on another front, which is sort of an incidental observation, but I thought it was very interesting, uh, the panel consisted of three women. Mm. I've, it's rare to see a three-judge panel in the federal courts of appeals that are just women. And so I was uh, interested, and I did a little research online, and I looked at the composition of the active judges in all the federal circuits. Yeah. The Sixth Circuit is the only circuit with gender parity. Uh, and partly this is Obama appointed several women to the Sixth Circuit. Right. Uh, and, of course, Trump will probably dissipate some of that because he's appointed very few women to federal courts of appeals. Very so few women or minorities of, well, or... Of any sort. Or minorities yeah. of any sort. And the Sixth Circuit is not exactly a bastion of liberal judges. Well, it I hasn't mean, been known, fairly... but it's it's actually, uh, with Obama's appointments, it's become a pretty reasonable circuit. Reasonable. Uh, and we'll see how long that lasts. Because, of course, they were the outlier in the marriage equality cases, yeah. the Sixth Circuit case. Right. Um, was the one, was the Obergefell case that right. made it up, so... Yeah, but that was a two-to-one. That's true. When you're yeah. just dealing with three folks, yeah. if only we'd so, had all women on so that So it'll panel. be interesting here. The The funeral home is being represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, our old friends who uh, love to oppose gay rights whenever they have the opportunity. Right. And uh, so the chances that they will uh, seek a higher level of review here seem pretty high to me. Yes. Yeah. This is a cause case. They were amicus briefs and stuff like that. So uh, this may go up. We'll see. How exciting. Okay, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll chat more about the unconstitutional trans-military ban plan. We're back. Our federal government continues its unjustified and un-American attack on the brave members of our transgender community who are willing to give their lives in service to our country. The Trump administration issued three new documents on March 23rd, which amount to its trans ban plan to exclude transgender troops from the armed services. So far, Trump is on a zero to six losing streak in the courts. That means that this plan has absolutely no immediate effect, and it's still plainly unconstitutional, at least in our opinion right now. Yes, in this office. Right. Um, on our panel. Um, Art, so take us through the latest developments on this policy and this um, series of legal challenges that it continues to face. Okay. Uh, Probably few people need to be reminded of this, but Trump tweeted in July, a three-part tweet, but he basically said, categorical ban, transgender people cannot serve in the military. Uh, Immediate consternation because he had included in the Defense Department. They had no idea what to say to reporters when they called that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs immediately said, well, we're not implementing anything until we see some details. and then toward the end of August, August 25th, uh, the White House put out a memorandum fleshing it out, saying uh, we're going to delay indefinitely allowing transgender people to enlist. Uh, serving people will be dismissed starting March 23rd. And 
we're not going to pay for any transition costs except for the people who are in process now. And uh, directed uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis that uh, I want you to submit to me an implementation plan by February 22nd. Uh, so during that week in February, it's uncertain exactly what date, but during that week in February, Mattis submitted a memorandum with a report and recommendations attached, purportedly written by an expert panel that he had convened within the Defense Department to study the matter and make recommendations. So uh, basically what was done in a new memorandum that Trump issued on March 23rd, he purported to revoke all of his prior communications on the subject. Uh, and in that same memo, he authorized Mattis, or he recognized that Mattis and the Secretary of Homeland Security, they can adopt the policy that they deem appropriate. The policy that he deems appropriate is we don't allow transgender people to enlist if they've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. The only transgender people can, who can enlist are those who haven't been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, don't suffer from it, have no intention of transitioning, and will serve in the military in their birth sex yep. and comply with all regulations for their birth sex. All right, number one, that's on enlistment. Number two, uh, we're not going to throw out all these people who've been serving. Mm. Uh, they can continue to serve. If they've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, we will allow them to complete the process and transition. If they haven't been diagnosed and they don't suffer from gender dysphoria, they just identify as transgender, they will be allowed to serve on the same basis as the people we're going to allow to enlist. They, it's like don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Pretend you're not transgender. Comply with everything required by your birth sex. Uh, and in terms of paying for these medical procedures, well, that ends on March 23rd or shortly thereafter because only the people who are currently serving who've been diagnosed are going to be allowed to complete the process. Uh, so it's another version of the same thing. Uh, and one of the interesting questions immediately was, what about all those preliminary injunctions that were issued last fall? Yeah, because I'm sure that was on right, the minds of the folks writing this new plan. Four federal district judges issued preliminary injunctions against the plan announced last summer going into effect. And two of those were brought to the courts of appeals by the Justice Department and they rebuffed the request for stays. Mm -hmm. They didn't even bother with the other two because they're both in the Ninth Circuit. They knew they weren't going to get anywhere <laughs> in the Ninth Circuit. So they didn't even bother. They desisted. So those are in effect. Now, when the people at the Pentagon were asked, well, as a result of the March 23 documents that were released, what about the preliminary injunctions? They said, we will abide by the law, which is the injunctions are in effect unless they lifted. But they are taking the position that the policy announced by Mattis on March 23rd is a new policy. It's different from the policy announced by Trump, and therefore the preliminary injunctions are moot because Trump has revoked that policy. Well, this is all stagecraft, you know, and sure. bamboozlement and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the attorneys from Lambda Legal, who are representing the plaintiffs in, in Seattle, Karnowski, yeah. uh, the Karnowski case, they said, look, this is the same old policy. Trump ordered Mattis to come up with an implementation plan. This is the implementation plan. Sure. Uh, and the fact that he says he's revoked is irrelevant because nothing was in effect anyway. Right. Because of the preliminary injunctions. The big issue now is to cast a lot of doubt on the Mattis memo and the report and recommendations attached to it because 
this is like the key in this case. When you attack military policy and regulations in court, you are faced with the doctrine of deference to expert military judgment. Hmm. Now, the four judges in the district courts were unanimously opposed to extending any deference to Trump's, Trump's tweets. They said there's no indication anywhere. He consulted with anybody. He can, well, he claims to have consulted with <laughs> my generals. And hasn't produced anything. Right. In fact, this was a big discovery battle that was going on in the, in the case in Seattle, and Judge Peckman had also already issued a string of decisions ordering them to reveal who Trump consulted with. And uh, at the last moment, in like the day before uh, the March 27 hearing, they said, we're going to exert executive privilege. She said, well, I doubt that you can exert executive privilege over their identity. You, yeah. can, you can exert privilege about what, what they, they said. said. But so that's yet to be settled. And, and the other thing, and this report is anonymous. The report and recommendations is not signed by anyone. Mm. It doesn't state who wrote it. The only name on anything is Mattis's name on the memo, which was drafted for him by someone in the Pentagon or the Justice Department. And uh, there is reporting in the press uh, that, in fact, the whole job of producing this documentation was turned over, sort of commandeered by Vice President Pence, who called up his friends at the Heritage Foundation who sent a bunch of people who've been writing anti-transgender law review articles for the last few years. Ryan Anderson, sure. Ryan Anderson and company. And a lot of this sounds just like them. They're just, you know, uh, parroting their own arguments. And... uh, he Much just wrote a new book, actually, yeah. and on Twitter there was a big back and forth of, this sounds exactly like your new book. Did you have any role in it? Ryan yeah. Anderson didn't exactly deny it. Yeah. So this sounds... This has nothing to do with military expertise, but that's <laughs> what they're trying to say. Right. What they're saying now in the post-hearing briefs and what they said at the hearing on March 27th, they said, well, this is a policy adopted by the military, not by Trump. Mm. It's adopted by Mattis based on the recommendations of an expert panel that he put together, which spent all of like six minutes thinking about this uh, and then coming up with something to justify Trump's policy. So it's obviously a a document prepared in contemplation of litigation, not a careful study Mm -hmm. undertaken over a period of years with the Rand Corporation, which Which is, you know, which is like the gold-plated study is the Rand Corporation, Mm -hmm. which says there's no problem. So so the point is, at this point, uh, the district courts and ultimately the courts of appeals and maybe the Supreme Court have to be persuaded that this is not an occasion for deference to expert military opinion, that mm-hmm. this report is bullshit. Uh, we can say it on I think okay, that's we, right. We no, our it. listeners okay. are going to love that. All right. Well, that, that, that report is... <laughs> Do you want me to bleep you, Art? And, and there, is, <laughs> there is a wonderful op-ed. Uh, we're, we're recording this on uh, the 9th, and there's an op-ed that just went up on the New York Times website today uh, by Nathaniel Frank, who is an authority on LGBT policy issues, and he's gone through all of these published studies, hundreds and hundreds of studies, and they all show that a lot of the stuff in this memorandum is just garbage. It's, right. You know, it's junk science type stuff. Uh, well, I mean, there's well documented that uh, the treatments that have been gotten, getting better and better, we're getting better and better at dealing with gender transition. And, you know, that they're the not expensive. Aspects, that they're not unduly expensive, that they're successful, that they reduce the, the likelihood of complications and suicide and doesn't and affect min- military readiness. Right, the whole thing. So, you Well, know. and didn't Judge Cole Arcatelli find that this was also based on animus in the first right. place? So right. that's not a rational basis. Right. 
But we're talking heightened scrutiny here when we're talking gender right. identity. Even if you, now, if you add in military, deference to military, then the heightened scrutiny goes away and it right. becomes a rational basis and case. Even but even there. Uh, so I think we're in, we're in a pretty good uh, position here with this stuff. And uh, someone pointed out online, it's sort of interesting, because Trump revoked his policy and Mattis hasn't formally implemented anything new. Mm-hmm. What we've got is the old Obama administration policy. That's in effect for now. And chances are good that it will remain in effect as this case is litigated. Well, now we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk with Art about a flurry of developments all relating to access to accurate birth certificates for transgender individuals. We're back. March 31st was the International Transgender Day of Visibility. This is a holiday that celebrates transgender individuals and raises awareness of the discrimination that they face worldwide. Of course, birth certificates are essential identity documents. Up until recently, four states, Idaho, Kansas, Ohio, and Tennessee, still did not permit transgender individuals to change the sex listed on their birth certificates. However, on March 5th, the U.S. District Court for the District of Idaho ordered the Idaho Department of Health to begin accepting such applications from transgender individuals. Shortly thereafter, the U.S. District Court for the District of Puerto Rico struck down a policy that prevented transgender people born in Puerto Rico from correcting the gender marker on their birth certificates. And also this month, a lawsuit was filed in Ohio challenging Ohio's refusal to correct gender markers on birth certificates for transgender individuals for any reason at any time. So let's talk about these three cases. Well, you said it, but I mean, (laughs) what what is significant here, uh, particularly significant about the case in Idaho, uh, which was decided by the same magistrate judge who decided their marriage equality case, that the state conceded from the outset that they had no rational basis for their policy. They said, look, this is in our state legislation. Mm-hmm. You know, there are limitations on what we can do without new legislation. Our legislature is never going to do this. Come on, right, guys, get real. So they said to the judge, look, we will concede that there's no rational basis. You can order us to do it. But the plaintiff said, well, well, just a minute. How are you going to do it? What are you going to require? Are you going to require surgery? Are you going to require psychoanalysis? Are you, because this is a problem we have across the country. We've now reached a position where only a handful of states were saying absolutely no. Uh, so the plaintiffs were a bit leery here. After all, we're dealing with Idaho. They said, what? You know, and they weren't willing, the government people weren't willing to commit on what they were going to come up with. Uh, so they said, look, we want to make sure that we have a standard of review that will make it difficult for them to come up with anything that isn't really, really, truly justifiable. Uh, so they said to the judge, we want you to decide that this is a heightened scrutiny case, and that way that it would be presumptively unconstitutional for them to erect any barriers unless they could show a good justification for them. And the judge said, you know, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And uh, the judge basically gave them a month to comply, and so on April 6th, last Friday, they started accepting applications. So go apply, Idaho. Go, go, go apply, Idaho, right. So let's talk about... Um, well, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, it's, it's, is it's there anything? That, it's, uh, it's, uh, that came out on March 28th, and it was sort of following along. This was uh, also a Lambda legal case. Also Lambda. Yeah, Lambda. In fact, Lambda is uh, behind the new Ohio case that was just filed. Mm-hmm. And I have to believe they're working on finding local counsel in Kansas and Tennessee and a few local plaintiffs, because mm-hmm. you, you, know, you need some local plaintiffs and counsel to have standing and go in. Sure. Uh, so I'm sure that will follow in short order, and we'll hit 50 states. Uh, but we got to, I mean, there's got to be a rush on this because Trump is busy appointing appeals judges. And 
if these cases at any point get appealed, who knows? If we run into a state that's going to be really hard ass about it. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, I will be chatting with AVP's Virginia Gog. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I'm sitting down with Anti-Violence Project's legal director, Virginia Goggin, to discuss the work that AVP's legal department does to serve members of the LGBTQ and HIV-affected communities when they experience sexual assault, intimate partner, or domestic violence. Hi, Virginia. Hi. Thanks for having me. Can you start by giving us a bit of an overview of how LGBTQ and HIV-affected communities experience sexual violence? Absolutely. So um, our communities experience sexual violence in the same ways that other communities do um, within our relationship, um, from family members, from strangers, um, and then also within institutions, uh, whether someone might be incarcerated or um, from law enforcement, etc. Um, there are a lot of myths around sexual violence within our communities. Um, whether it's internal or outside of our communities. And some of them include that, you know, a man can't be raped by another man Mm -hmm. or that a woman is not capable of either rape or sexual violence against another woman. All of these issues um, need to be discussed and need to be brought out. And I think specifically for our communities and especially for our communities who are also people of color, um, there is a a barrier to reporting these types of crimes. Um, Traditionally, the police have not been a friend to, let's say, the black community. So as a black transgender woman, it may be very uncomfortable to report sexual violence or intimate partner violence to the NYPD or other law enforcement. Many times when LGBTQ folks do report, um, they may be turned turned away. So, you know, we I have anecdotal stories from clients who have tried to report and literally have been called offensive names, um, had uh, transphobic comments made to them, and were turned away until they came to AVP and we were able to sort of bridge that gap. Um, they then are able to make that report but that's not always the, the first thing that people want to do. Most people want to be safe um, and feel safe in their work life, in their home life, etc. Um, and so the other thing that, that AVP does, and I think is really important, is listening to what their survivor actually wants, right? So if someone is interested in, in making some kind of uh, report to the police, we can facilitate that. If they're interested in getting an order of protection to keep their intimate partner or former intimate partner away from them, we can do that. We can help with housing and and that sort of thing. So it's really um, client-centered. I see. And you actually bring up, I mean, you offer a whole range of legal services um, as part of AVP's work because there's so many ways that... Um, violence against our communities can actually impact other legal issues. And you mentioned access to housing, family law, like orders of protection and things like that. So there are just multiple layers of intersecting legal issues that somebody can be experiencing at the same time. That's absolutely true. And um, the way that we 
set up the progr- the legal program here at AVP um, was to be able to address as many legal issues as possible for for the survivors that are coming to see us. So um, as an example, somebody may come in who needs an order of protection uh, from a former intimate partner. We, of course, will work on that with them. But then within the, you know, sort of comprehensive legal intake, we also discover that um, they may be undocumented. Um, they may need a legal name change. Um, they may need... Uh, assistance in getting into a domestic violence shelter. So all of these things impact somebody's um, both safety and feeling of security um, within their lives. It is very important that all of those legal needs are, are taken care of. As you're talking, I mean, AVP does holistic services, the social services that you provide, the advocacy that you do to change the law, the legal, direct legal services that you provide to people. And like you said, violence affects every aspect of a person's life and experience. So without being able to access all of those needs or going to different places to receive them, um, it really puts them at risk every time they're seeking a different service. And so to provide that kind of holistic um, service to people who come seeking help is really what makes AVP unique. Not to mention the fact that you literally have to know every aspect of the law because you're (laughs) dealing with housing, family, immigration, asylum. I mean, asylum law is really complex even for like people who practice it day in and day out. And the idea that, how many people are in your legal department? Uh, We have three three attorneys, two paralegals, and one of the paralegals is BIA accredited, meaning she's able to practice immigration law under the supervision of an attorney. Wow. Um, So yeah, when I was talking to Art earlier, I told him that I was going to be sitting down with you, and he mentioned that um, you were a former law student. Yeah, so I graduated from New York Law School. Um, I had Professor Leonard. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And um, have certainly, you know, worked with him and... Um, been in touch throughout the years because we're obviously doing a lot of the same same types of work. <laughs> and you actually have an interesting history with Legal because you were a uh, Hank Henry Fellow. I was. Judicial Fellow. For folks that don't know, our Hank Henry Judicial Fellowship is a really unique experience that provides folks with a 10-week internship fellowship where you cycle through with different openly LGBT judges. How was that experience for you? It was such a fabulous experience. Yeah. Um, um, and really without Legal, I wouldn't have had that experience. Um, I think it actually shaped a lot of what I, what I wanted to do with my career, um, partly because it, it is clear to me, or was clear to me at the time, that um, while LGBTQ folks are showing up in every court, right, because we are everywhere, um, there, aren't, there, there weren't organizations that were working with sort of low income and folks who needed direct legal services who identified as LGBTQ. Mm. And I actually, I received a fellowship when I graduated to start the LGBTQ law project at NILAG, the New York Legal Assistance Group. And when I pitched it to them, their response was, there's plenty of organizations doing this. There's Lambda, there's, you know, NCLR, there's, you know, named a a few of the big sort of national organizations. But no one was doing direct legal services. And um, it just, 
it was an amazing opportunity to to start um, a, a program, and then now to see so many different legal service organizations um, having sort of departments or, or people who are dedicated to specifically working with LGBTQ low-income folks is amazing. So our audience largely includes lawyers, judges, um, even uh, public officials, elected officials. What would you say would be your advice to um, lawyers, to judges, about ways that they can um, either get involved with um, the work of AVP or help to offer um, support to people who are experiencing, in our community, who are experiencing um, intimate partner violence or sexual violence, um, what, what advice would you give? Yeah, I mean, I think for attorneys who are able to do pro bono work, um, picking up these types of cases, uh, getting obviously the, the training to do so through organizations like AVP or Immigration Equality, um, etc. Um, for judges, I would say making sure that they are running their courtrooms in respectful ways for LGBTQ folks. So, for example, um, working with a survivor of intimate partner violence who is transgender, making sure that you are respecting them, you're respecting their, uh, their pronouns while, while in court, um, respecting their, their uh, preferred name, and making sure, um, as the, the guidelines tell them to, that there isn't discrimination going on in their courtroom. Mm -hmm. So making sure that the court officers are being respectful, making sure and directing opposing counsel if they are misgendering your client to refer to your client as she or he, um, depending on the person. So again, doing sort of self-education, but also ensuring that you go to um, the trainings that teach you how to work with LGBTQ people. Um, you know, one thing that I always think about too is, and you're also a nonprofit, and I think anyone that is in nonprofit, in the nonprofit world, the thing that we need is resources, right? And you know, so it's not always the easiest thing to say, donate money, right? Um, but it is very important. And um, right now, I, I just looked up a statistic around. Um, donations from LGBTQ folks, mm -hmm. and the LGBTQ nation reported that only 3% of LGBT adults have given to or gave to national LGBT organizations in 2010. And that to me is, it's just, it's outrageous. Um, and maybe folks don't know that there are these organizations that are in such need right now, especially now as um, all of the legal victories that we have been able to accomplish over the years are um, at risk. Mm -hmm. um, so for folks who are able, financially able, I think that donations are, are super important. To AVP, of course, going to make that <laughs> personal pick. Hey. But to all, you know, to the legals and to the immigration equalities and and all of the organizations that are working to protect our rights. And then AVP has a lot of opportunities for folks who are interested in volunteering as well. Okay. Aside from, uh, you know, working with pro bono attorneys, uh -huh. we have a 24-hour um, hotline for people to report 
violence that they have experienced or that they've witnessed on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to keep that 24-7, uh, we rely on volunteers. And so um, folks who are interested in, in working on the hotline can go through our hotline training, which is about a 40-hour uh, training where you become a, a rape crisis uh, counselor uh-huh. uh, certified through New York State um, and then are able to pick up shifts and, um, you know, answer calls from your home or, or wherever you may be at the times when uh, the, the office is not open. Of course, with full support from our clinical staff and, and that sort of thing. But um, again, it's such an important way and, you know, way that folks can can give some of their time mm-hmm. monthly. And then we do other types of volunteer work where folks go out literally on the street and hand out information about AVP um, so that community members can learn um, about the work that we do. Um, I saw your billboards in Times Square. Yes. <laughs> amazing, mean, right? You have arrived. Yes, we have <laughs> arrived. We are in Times Square, which is really exciting. AVP on Broadway. <laughs> oh, I like the sound that of that. Really sings. Do you sing? <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, Karaoke, well, off tune. <laughs> okay, we'll spare our listeners. Um, yeah, no, because of, as we said, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Awareness is so critical for people for for people to know that you provide these services, but also for members of the LGBTQ legal community to know that these services are available and that culturally competent trainings are available um, to help people who are in need is so important. So we do encourage you, if you're listening and you want to get involved with ABP, please reach out um, to Virginia or uh, get involved with their trainings. You can always reach out to Legal too. Never too late to Never give us late. a plug. Um, so Virginia, thank you so much for talking to us today. You're very welcome. We really appreciate it and uh, we'll be back. Okay, thank you. Okay, and we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. Art, what do you have for us? Well, with apologies to the late Dr. Oliver Sacks, author of the immortal book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, uh, I I headlined this, The Man Who Mistook His Laptop for a Potential Bride. Uh, This is Chris Sevier. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, Chris Sevier has been going around the country suing for a marriage license to marry his laptop. He says that after Obergefell, it's clear there's a fundamental right to marry your love, and he loves his laptop. But he has another uh, another bee in his bonnet. The bee in his bonnet here is that uh, he thinks it violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment for members of Congress to display rainbow pride flags in their offices because he says homosexuality is a religion. You know, if people who are opposed to it out of religious motives, then people who are for it most have religious motives. So it must be a religion. And if it's a religion and you're flying... Have you seen RuPaul's Drag Race? I mean, if you go into the bars, it feels, if not a sporting event, a holy experience. Well, he ran into U.S. District Judge Randolph Moss in the District of Columbia, who refused to issue uh, injunctions against these four members of the House who uh, make the honor roll for putting up pride flags, (laughs) you know, in front of their offices in June. Okay. But uh, wait, where was this? What state? This is D.C. Oh, in D.C. Okay. Yeah, this is because he was he was suing here the House of Representatives. Well, the, the the members of the House that put up the pride flags. He says, "I'm a lobbyist." 
And it really puts me off having to walk past a pride flag to go into a member's offices, you know, because it's an establishment of religion. Uh, and my religion is not their religion. And uh, it's funny because the motion to dismiss was that he didn't have standing and it was a not justiciable, it was a political question, and the judge didn't go for that. He oh. said, the problem here is that homosexuality is not a religion. And this is really neat. He says, uh, whatever else religion might entail, it at minimum requires adherence to one or more fundamental beliefs. Homosexuality, quote unquote, by contrast, is not a set of beliefs at all. It is a description of a person's sexual orientation. Similarly, the argument that acceptance of homosexuality constitutes a religion, if that is what Sevier means to assert, also fails. The gay rights movement bears no trappings of religion as that concept is widely understood. And Sevier has not plausibly alleged that a reasonable person would perceive the display of the rainbow flags as religious in nature. Well, I have news for this judge. <laughs> yeah. He should, he should stop in a congregation Bates in Hatora in New uh, York yeah. where we have rainbow flags uh-huh. in our lobby. Yeah. And we venerate them. I don't think we worship them. <laughs> we venerate. I mean, huh. they were donated to us by... Uh, the guy who invented the rainbow flag. He yeah. donated some. He made some up for us. And he donated and we hang them in our lobby during the dedication of the space and we yeah. display them on occasions. Uh, so to say that homosexuality has nothing to do with religion? Come on. My rabbi... You didn't would, feel like writing an amicus brief no. in this case on his side? No, my rabbi <laughs> would disagree. <laughs> um well, that's certainly interesting. Um, but I can't believe who are they? Who's the lawyer that they found to do bring this case, or is he pro se? He's a lawyer. Oh God, of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and here I am invoking God in this pro- podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you, Art. <laughs> Always entertaining way to close out our segment. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.legal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Follow me at Ed Lesh and Art at AS Leonard One. Thanks again. Back in May.